Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, regulatory power. With the role of regulations becoming more high-profile as policymakers seek to implement the complex provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it seems like a good time to step back and take a look at the limits of the Treasury Department's authority to make those regulations. My guest this week has some thoughts on this issue. He is Ben Willis, the newest contributing editor at Tax Notes and author of the Willis Ways In column. Ben, welcome to the podcast. David, thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. So let's start uh, with the regulators themselves. How does the executive branch view its role in policymaking through regulations? Well, I believe the executive branch has multi-layers, and these different layers, which we'll talk about, each have a different view. And so we can start at the very top of the executive branch and focus on the policy agendas set by the executive and then work our way down into the Treasury Department, who's led by Secretary Mnuchin, who has reporting to him the commissioner of the IRS, Commissioner Reddick. And that that relationship is an interesting one because we like to think of the IRS as an unbiased agency who's fighting for fairness and equality and executing the tax laws. But we also know that there's an agenda that comes down from, from Treasury, a part of the cabinet, and that the president has the ability to fire the commissioner at will under the Internal Revenue Code. And so with that ability comes a lot of pressure, I believe. And And the ability to impose political pressure on the IRS has been an issue for decades. We can take a look at the Lois Lerner incident, or we could take a look at even before that with uh, NAACP, where senators were angrily calling in to the IRS about comments made, uh, negative comments about President Bush at the time, and uh, questioning why they had tax-exempt status. And so both Democrats, Republicans have both had, you know, accusations about their bias and using the IRS as a tool to implement that bias. And so that's the higher end of the answer. And then at the lower end is, you know, you've got these drafters who are working away at these massively complex statutory provisions in writing regulations to help taxpayers interpret them. And we all know how important of a task this is because we need interpretation on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It simply has too many holes, too many uncertainties, effective data issues, things that you've talked about before on other shows that require answers. And the question is, if we're not going to be able to get the legislative branch to step in with technical corrections, can the Treasury Department and the IRS do anything to help taxpayers? And I really believe that that is what they're trying to do. But in doing so, some of these interpretations that have come out in recent regulations seem so focused on revenue raising, perhaps justifying the revenue estimates underlying the bill originally, or to pay for certain political agenda expenses or what have you. But in any respect, if we're looking at these regulations, which are increasing the burden on what taxpayers thought it would be through the statutory provisions themselves, we have to question whether or not those drafters have the authority to write those regulations. Now, when you're saying that there's the looking to raise revenue, where would the pressure to raise revenue come from for the regulators? So it would come from the executive branch. And, and this is all, obviously, that's a broad answer. They're all part of the executive branch, but it would come from anywhere from the president all the way down through the commissioner and passing it to his bosses. So if Secretary Mnuchin 
was given an order to ensure that a certain type of taxpayer receive a certain treatment, whether it be related to real estate activities or foreign investment or what have you, and that pressure is exerted on the commissioner and then thereby passed down through to the actual reg writers, I think you could wind up having some real pressure on those people to ensure that the provisions are taxing in a way that is desirable to the administration. So what sort of regulations are we seeing where the uh, Treasury is going beyond maybe what we expected under the statute in order to, to raise additional revenue? That's a great question. And I think it'll be something I'll be dealing with along with many others for months to come as as all these regs come out. One of the uh, most frequently cited examples of this is the definition of interest inside the 163J regulations. Uh, A lot of folks believe that the courts have a well-established definition of interest. It is not an ambiguous term. And when it was used in the statute and then later broadened in regulations, which pull in impunity interest, which pull in debt fees and commitment costs, loan obligation costs into the definition of interest that this was broadening the statute much further than Congress had given the authority to do. And so I would say interest is a prime example. Another large example is in the recent guilty regulations where there are basis adjustments provided for in those regulations. They're worried about loss duplication concerns, at least that's what the preamble says. The problem is, is that those regulations, which are promulgated under 951A, focus on guilty and the basis provision in the statute is 961. And in fact, Congress chose to amend 961, the basis adjustment provision for the controlled foreign corporation rule, CFC rules, for 245A dividends. These are excluded dividends that come up under the new hybrid territorial system. And so when those dividends come up, there is indeed under 961D a a basis reduction for them, but Congress chose not to make any basis reductions for anything else. Here, the IRS believed that they would make their own basis adjustment using another regulation, Dash 6 and and the 961A new regulations. And they cite Ilfeld, which is a a very narrow consolidated return case principle, which is focused on double deductions created by a basis duplication system, an investment adjustment system inside of those regulations. And so not only does the actual language in the regulation go well beyond the statute that was updated for these provisions, but the logic that the IRS provided for its reasoning is faulty. It doesn't relate to CFCs or the system which actually governs the application of these rules. And so I think these are just a couple of the issues that taxpayers are not only concerned about, but are likely to litigate cases, which is why I believe, even though we're focused now on the executive branch, we're really going to be thinking about the entire government as a whole as, as we look at this further. So if these interpretations were not affirmatively authorized by Congress or even left ambiguous, where's Treasury finding the authority to make these rules? 
So 7805A of the Internal Revenue Code provides the IRS with the general authority to provide rules. A lot of people refer to these as interpretive regulations. And this provision is limited, however, which we must appreciate. It's limited in that the rules must be needful to the enforcement of the provisions within the code. And so this grant, which Congress gave them through the code, ensures that the IRS follow what the intent of Congress was by relying solely on the provisions within it. And so the IRS believes that it is following this statute in interpretations that it's making. And I think they may believe that they are experts in this area, which certainly the IRS has more expertise in in tax than other government agencies. But does that expertise justify going well beyond what was provided for by Congress? I don't think so. And I could envision a situation where the IRS would argue that there is Chevron deference and they should be granted a level of deference in promulgating these regulations. But in reality, that provision or that case only applies where the statute is unclear. And the instances that I'm talking about with you, and in fact, the majority of the concerns that folks have about overly broad regulations fall well outside Chevron and uh, relate to statutes that are very clear. And in fact, there is a, you know, a litany of case law on this topic where the IRS has lost, where they've made regulations trying to prevent double benefits. And the IRS has been told by these courts, including the Supreme Court, that uh, they must respect the code as written, even if it provides an unexpected windfall to the taxpayer, as the court states. We've talked a lot about about the statutes, so let, let's turn now to uh, the Congress itself. And, you know, on the one hand, they create these gaps in statutes that are the areas that need regulations. But how do they view the authority of the regulators? I think that's an excellent question, particularly since over the past year, numerous bills have been pushed forward by members of Senate and the House to reduce the authority of the IRS and uh, provide more protection to taxpayers. One of the famous uh, acts that came out last year is the Taxpayer First Act of 2018, H.R. 7227, which provides that a number of penalty provisions inside of the Internal Revenue Code shall be altered to really provide the taxpayer with more benefits and protections that the Congress believes that those taxpayers are entitled to. And so in 98, we had a reorganization of the IRS. This is really an attempt to redo that. And Congress has, you know, cited a lot of things for this. They've looked at, uh, you know, again, the lowest learner and other perceived abuses that have gone on within the executive branch. But in putting forward this new legislation, I think the majority of Congress right now uh, believes that there needs to be a lot of changes made within the IRS and within its authority. And I think that this is on par with the same concerns that we've been talking about throughout our discussion today, which is making sure that the IRS doesn't overstep. And now that we know that Congress is clearly on board with altering the rules that the IRS are required to follow because they believe that the current ones are not either sufficient to protect taxpayers or the IRS isn't following 
targeting them, then this new taxpayer-first legislation, I think, will hopefully provide a level of protection that will prevent the concerns that you and I are talking about, like with respect to these regulations. I guess while the Congress is attempting to rein in the authority of the IRS, isn't it true that they could write the statutes more tightly in order to basically preempt things that the IRS could do by regulation? I think they have done that. And that's why I believe that the IRS has overreached in writing its current regulations. And so the law on this, the case law, is clear in that the IRS can't expose a taxpayer to taxes beyond the authority granted to it by the Internal Revenue Code. And so when these rules are written, uh, the IRS, to me, is directly violating not only the statute, which only allows regulations to go so far in interpreting them, where there's the need for interpretation, such as where an ambiguity exists, but also the fact that the courts have been very explicit in a number of rulings and instances, the IRS is overstretched. I think just a few months back, a case called Illinois Toolworks came out where uh, an argument was made that a conduit provision inside a 956 regulation with a principal purpose threshold, which basically was getting at transactions where taxpayers were using a conduit to funnel E&P up into the U.S. And this provision basically said if, if they have a principal purpose of doing that, you know, then it'll be treated as a direct investment in the U.S. as opposed to going through the conduit entity in between the U.S. and the actual entity with the earnings and treated as a dividend. And in that case, the court found in favor of the taxpayer and said that the regulation was not applicable. And there's also other case law out there focusing on this exact same point, that when the courts try to create some sort of a penalty provision which often uses these type of wrongdoing thresholds, these scienter thresholds, to use a, a term of art or legalese. You know, when they insert them into regulations, just like they are in the code and, you know, a willful evasion of tax, for example, and other provisions that really get at the intent of a taxpayer trying to avoid an outcome, that they're going to strictly construe that language in favor of the taxpayer. And so I believe that the IRS is actually doing itself a disservice oftentimes in creating these rules and ensuring that they will be looked at with greater scrutiny and with uh, no deference to the agency at all. So if the courts are providing less deference toward IRS rulemaking, what's the point of going beyond the statute and pushing these uh, these extra provisions? I think the point is similar to taxpayers who engage in transactions and take on audit risk. And so, for example, if a taxpayer engages in a transaction that they think might be abusive but believe there's less than a 1% chance they'll be audited, then they're more likely to engage in that transaction because even though they think it's likely to violate certain principles, it's also even less likely that the IRS will find out about it and bring them to court. On the IRS side, however, to your point, I think the IRS is betting that the likelihood that somebody will call them on this regulation as being 
in violation of a principle is something that they can avoid, something they can settle out before it needs to go to court if they believe they're in a weak position and is simply unlikely to go to court and get overturned. And so there's a, a level of risk assessment, I believe, that's involved when the IRS, you know, takes a look at its power to make these regulations and say, hey, do I really have the ability to force a taxpayer to call something interest that's really fees and costs unrelated to the actual term interest and the cost of borrowing, they believe that they can escape any, you know, overturning of that through, like I said, either one, not getting the taxpayer to uh, call their bluff or settling out before it goes to court. So again, I think there's a a risk minimization strategy, but at the same time, I think there's, they believe that some of these risks are just not that great. And so they're willing to take them. So I guess that brings us next to the point of the, the people who will challenge these inevitably, the taxpayers themselves. How are taxpayers responsible? Responding to these these broad regulations? Well, I think they're getting bolder and bolder all the time with respect to this issue, and that's why the IRS needs to be concerned. And so Illinois Tool, which we've already mentioned, is a, a recent example of that. But uh, I think with respect to provisions inside of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, there's even more concern that the IRS should be having because there is this mounting resistance or view against their regulations that they are an overreach. And so as taxpayers continually see uh, this administration pushing the boundaries of legislation and ignoring the words that Congress provided inside of its statute, they're willing to, you know, bring that into court. And so I believe that a number of these regulations, if finalized, will eventually be overturned and held in favor of the taxpayer that the, uh, they're overly broad and therefore a nullity and void. Well, Ben, this has been fascinating. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot to watch play out over the next several years as all these regulations come up. Speaking of things that will be playing out over the next few years, you're a new columnist here at Tax Notes. Uh, can you tell me about what you're planning on writing about and, and where do you come from? Sure. So I have a column, Willis Ways In, that I'm bringing back. I uh, Before I went to government, I did have the column in tax notes. And I'm going to be focusing largely on the same issues I did then, which are controversial cross-border tax issues, like the ones that we're discussing today. Right. And so I, I want to bring a fresh perspective, having spent time at the Treasury Department, the IRS, Senate Finance Committee, and in the big firms uh, helping taxpayers interpret guidance just like that being issued all the time. And so I think we'll be continuing the same theme as the willis Wazing column when it first started. And I look forward to hopefully inciting some good debate and discussion. And I more than welcome any comments or disagreement with my points of view. And I uh, look forward to talking more about it with you. All right. Excellent. Well, for any uh, listeners that want to disagree with you in person, do you have a, a social media presence where they can go straight at you? Absolutely. I uh, just opened up an account last night uh, for the first time on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Willis Ways In, the name of my column. Right. And uh, I look forward to uh, folks reaching out to me there. All right. Well, listeners who are interested in reading more about what we talked about today should check out Ben's first column. It will be appearing in the January 28th edition of Tax Notes. Ben, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And now, coming attractions. 
Each week we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes, Brian Hamano examines existing guidance on blockchain transactions, and Adam Wallwork discusses recently issued regulations on tax-exempt private activity bonds and how they affect related public approval procedures. In State Tax Notes, Billy Hamilton examines state's legislative priorities for 2019, while Roxanne Bland addresses the development of Zapper software and its role in defrauding states of sales tax. And in Tax Notes International, a Brazilian practitioner examines how changes in U.S.-controlled foreign corporation and constructive ownership rules would affect the multinational entity with the Brazilian parent company. And Alexandra Ball discusses the EU's efforts to revamp the VAT system and how they compare to the 2016 VAT Action Plan. You can read all that and a lot more in the January 28th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at TaxStew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave us a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.